Wolf and Belly. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 210. Jason Lingard is with me, and Wayne McCroy is back. Um, today, we're going to cover uh, critical ideas, important ideas, mostly because there was a time in this world when, during the course of education, people got what's now referred to as classic education. In other words, it included old Greek myth ideas, which most people have always considered as just fanciful nonsense made up for some reason because someone felt like it. It's actually a lot more than that. It actually foundationally intertwines with so many of the things that go in our world. So we're just going to take a minute before we get in, and we're going to be covering Ovid, specifically Ovid's Metamorphosis. Um, this is a key, key book, and we will endeavor to show why. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a fine good morning to you. So, we are no longer way ahead. Uh, is there anything to mention, or should we just dive in? Oh, I think we need a deep dive here. <laughs> All right, welcome, Wayne. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to be here. All right, so let's just... I'm going to let you read what you've got, um, which actually I'm unaware of, because I know it's not in the notes. Um, but let's just try to outline for people why these things matter. And as I've said so many times, first and foremost, um, the idea, in my view, of gods is there are aspects of nature. In a lot of cases, what you can do is understand that if you wanted to be concerned with making it rain or something, you've got to have a way to think about it. And you might create tales to say why it rained this time or why it rained too much and you might personify the ideas it's kind of like that but it's so much more but the really important part is the idea that there are only so many stories that get told in our world uh, when i was young my father told me this in his generation the idea was there was 12 and some of the british authors apparently claimed having written most of them if you look it up online now, you'll hear everything from, oh, there's one storyline to two to 36 to all over the damn place. But it's pretty clear that people agree that there are so many storylines, which when you think about it logically is hard to accept at first. But when you start to dig in, you understand why they're saying this. Apparently, the farthest back we see with any supposed clarity, which I have problems with that statement already, is the Greeks wrote all these stories and they were so important that the Romans came along and they latched on to every single one of them. In many case, cases, they Romanized it. If we go back to Greece, you'll have ideas of Apollo or relations to the sun and Artemis, relations to the moon. NASA, hint, 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 still using these ideas. First moon mission, Apollo, the one that's supposedly coming now, Artemis. Now, when that gets Romanized, Artemis becomes Diana. We could do a whole show on that one name alone. The point I'm making here is these old myths are foundational to so much of the world that's probably never even made it into your field of view. But Wayne, do you want to read um, the ideas that you have in this general area? Yeah, sure. Uh, what I'm about to read is from a book called Changing Images of Man, and this was a 1974 cybernetics study uh, about uh, policy for the future. So I'm just going to get right in and read this paragraph. Quote, in this study, we attempt to identify and assess the images of man that are fundamental organizing principles of our society and or of of key civilizations that have contributed to it. All public and private policy decisions necessarily embody some view or compromise of views about the nature of man, society, and universe. The kind
kinds of educational systems and goals a society sets up, the ways in which it approaches the problems of material distribution, poverty, and wealth, how it treats welfare of its citizens, the priorities it gives to various human needs, all these aspects and many more are affected by the image of humankind that dominates the society. Precisely how, we cannot say with detailed accuracy, which is why, and this is the important part, guys, this is me interjecting here, but this is them saying it, which is why metaphors, myths, allegories, theories, all of which attempt to express an image, are useful. But in a very real way, all policy issues are issues relating to fundamental assumptions about the nature of man and his concerns, end quote. And there's the important part. They're saying that they need metaphors, myths, allegories, and theories to best express these policy decisions. And this is right out of... Uh, you know, a, a policy paper from this group of cyberneticists, Margaret Mead was among the authors in this book, that basically tries to set up outlines for the future and future policies. So this is coming directly from people in the know in this world, and they're admitting right there that mythology is an archetype that they use in order to figure out policies. All right, Margaret Mead can be shown to be lock, stock, step with Tavistock through Coleman's work and others, by the way, I think even Estelin. But let's cut to the chase here. Why make up a new story when there's already these old stories that tried to tell every story that could be told, kind of, and they're archetypal in all of society? In other words, you may never really be familiar with the myth where Apollo runs his chariot across the sky or why Icarus loses his wings near the sun, but that archetype is embedded in the world mind, and that's part of the occulted reason that they use these things. We're going to jump into Ovid here. Now, it's kind of an odd duck. You can go back and read all these myths, and you can go do the Iliad and the Odyssey and you know, even further to, to go get all these stories. But for some reason, Ovid came along, supposedly under the reign of Augustus, and he wrote from the beginning of the creation of the world all the way up to the supposed reign of Augustus. In that, he reincorporates, reweaves into the fabric. I think it's 250 myths. I've seen a couple differing, but I think most people agree it's about 250 of the main myths. And we contend that this is a playbook. Now, just to get back to the point before we jump in here, in some of the research that's done around places like Tavistock, which have so much power and influence in our world, after all, how much Bernays work have we done? He was on their payroll. Provably, it can be demonstrated now. We couldn't do that when we did the last run at Bernays, by the way. He was the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. It is thought by people who have dug in here that really Freud was the brain behind almost everything that Bernays did, but he was on the Tavistock payroll. One of the cited things, a couple things that were foundational to the starting of Wellington House in this later place called Tavistock was a book called The Fall of Western Civilization, became like their Bible. And the other thing claimed is that they had a better history somehow Maybe they went to the Vatican basement, I don't know, of the fall of Greece and the fall of Rome. It is claimed that they quantified into a handful of the most important reasons why those two cultures failed and then set out to reapply it, the first target being Germany. And we all saw what happened to Germany. So there's a little bit of pepper sprinkled on the table to try to give an idea of why we're taking the time to take apart Ovid's metamorphosis. And before we jump in, the last thing I'll say is Ovid. First thing we're going to do is tell you what his name means, but sounds like, is like, sounds like, relates to. 
That's about all I can say. So want to jump in, Jason? Let's reiterate the importance of the book slash document, The Changing Images of Man, and just how much the establishment puts in that document. Laid their cards on the table, basically face up. If there's four aces, you can see them in that document. Right, and I would like to add that uh, when we're looking at Ovid, for those with eyes to see, see, you, see, you could see a lot of things when you look at Ovid. Right, so we might be concerned right now mostly with books one through nine, hint, 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 but uh, we will cover the whole thing, if you can see. All right, so let's talk about who Ovid was. Publius Ovidius Naso, also known as Ovid in the English-speaking world, was a Roman poet who lived during the reign of Augustus. He is considered one of the three canonical poets of Latin literature, along with his contemporaries Virgil and Horace. So you will find that for some reason, of all the things that are said to have survived from this time, there are certain things that get held up above all others. As an example, we have covered Virgil's Aeneid. What Virgil's Aeneid is, in my view, is an attempt to connect the founding of Rome with heroes from the supposed Greek period, where all these myths originate, supposedly. Um, Horace is held up not quite as often as Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. There's like this small handful that for some reason are held up above all others. Now, with Virgil and the Aeneid and the story of Aeneas, who is a warrior who flees the fallen Troy to go over on over to Rome because the gods told him to do so and found the Roman Empire, which will take over the entire world and last forever in that storyline. These things almost seem to be the propaganda of their time. Now, Ovid is this on steroids, in my view. I don't accept the timeline we're being handed. I don't accept a lot of things. But nonetheless, we have this story, and it's wholly tied up to the reign of Augustus. What would you add there, Wayne? Uh, I would add that we'll see here that, that Ovid embodies a lot of uh, different characteristics that are attributed to these canonical poets of uh, the, the Roman era you'll start to see some commonalities. I mean, the way we took apart Virgil, once we move forward in the notes here, you'll see many things that kind of also relate to Ovid in many regards. And you can kind of see the connections from there if you have these eyes to see. Right. It's almost like what's happened is there was all these bricks laying around called myths and these certain authors who brought the myths forward who were special. And whoever or whatever Ovid was, whether he's a living man or not, doesn't matter. We have the writing, it exists. He made this new wall, and he started his wall at the beginning, almost like where Genesis starts, right? There's nothing, and we're going to make a world here. That's where the story in Ovid starts. And then he takes 250 carefully crafted myths or that were big ideas and he weaves them into this tale like it's almost like we got all these great stories i'm gonna go take all the parts i want from these stories and tell this new story that has to do with this thing called rome and run it up that way i don't know how else to describe it publius ovidius nasso a literal interpretation of his name could be translated as to publicly snub the sheep there is perhaps some intent that can be determined in the name game. <laughs> Names have meaning, and if it sounds like, it likely is like or relates to what it sounds like if you see. <laughs> what would you add, Wayne? I would add that uh, basically uh, the, the word naso, this name comes from uh, the upturned nose or to snub. I mean, when you go back into the etymology and look this up, this is what it is. And Ovidius 
translates as sheep. And Publius, we we discovered this with Virgil because what a coincidence. That was his first name on there too, wasn't it? Publius. So Publius <laughs> Ovidius Naso is to publicly snub the sheep. What's going on in society today? I mean yeah. they, they they look at us as cattle or sheep as it is, these people in the in you know, the places of power. So uh, you know, they snub us by putting uh, these archetypes, these mythological archetypes, directly in front of our faces, and we can't see because we're we're blind to it. But they know what's going on, so they're snubbing us and they're laughing at us with this. So the name game, man. So we just get Ovid. That's not even right. It's Ovidius, and why wouldn't you just put the the whole name in? You know, but no, it gets shrunk down to Ovid because over time people don't understand anything and this by the way same game going on with virgil we could go on and on we could relate it to nyc and events there and virgil there's even different spellings you got the i spelling you got the e spelling and these things matter anyhow so is this a stage name perhaps that was being used all the world's a stage you know how i feel about history that's claiming to be as old as it is it's it's clearly lived on for a reason and we might be living that reason right now, hint, hint, but I'm just saying, uh, we, don't, we don't have the magic key to the Vatican basement where we all assume the history of the world actually exists. It would be nice to get in there. There's a statue of Ovid in the Piazza 20 Septembre in Solmona, Italy. The ancient writers agreed on the remote origin of Solmona that it can be connected to the destruction of Troy. They claim that the city's name derives from Solomon, one of the companions of Aeneas. As a side note on the Piazza 20 Septembre, the September 1010 Square, it is dominated by the Palazzo Tagliazucci, a 16th century red brick building that now serves as a bank. Through this palace, at address number 29, is the entrance to the bread gallery of the covered market Albinelli. Oh my gosh, where, where, where do we start here? This one paragraph, if you could read it and not listen to it, would probably mean a lot more to you. And since I am an hour one, I will have to contend with the realities of what passes for speech in our world now. So let's start with Piazza 1010. Uh, and the way it would be written in this performance, it would be Piazza XX. So we would read that Piazza 1010. And typically, people just ignore the uh, the zeros, don't they, in the modern era that know anything. So it becomes Piazza 1-1, September in Solmona. This goes on and on and on. And even we have to include the ideas of Ennius and the fall of Troy. This is what I'm getting at. The fall of Troy, regardless of what you want to think about it, in the minds of the things that drives this world, is a big damn deal. These heroic tales. And by the way, all those heroes from the story of Troy, they're all royalty or lords or princes. Um, you don't hear about the footman that gets whacked, mostly. You do a little bit. But the names you know, these are important family names. When you're hearing Ajax, when you're hearing Achilles, when you're hearing any of them, that's because these are the special families. And so this heroic time of the Greeks is apparently coming to the end to make for Rome, where now all roads lead. I don't know how I can cue it up much better than that. What would you? Oh, and of course, the address is number 29, count the ways. Go ahead, Wayne. Right, and I'd also like to add that it's a red 
brick building and what else are we you know currently associating <laughs> the color red with first of all and second of all this this draws some parallels to uh stories in the bible when you look at this is the entrance to the quote-unquote bread gallery of the covered market albanelli a bread market house of bread bethlehem there's biblical ideas also encoded in this and this is why we are sitting here saying that uh this work of ovid the metamorphosis for those with eyes to see this is a playbook ovid is a playbook for those with the eyes to see dude such a great grab bread being beth just to make clear what wayne just said such a good observation go ahead jason Ovid was born in the Polygenian town of Solmo, which is modern-day Solmona, in the province of L'Aquila, Abruzzo, in a valley east of Rome. He was born to an important equestrian family, the Gens Ovidia, on March 20th, 43 BC. That was a significant year in Roman politics. I'm just going to step aside. Have at it, Wayne. Once again, we see, which turns up all the time when we look at these mythological archetypes, the archetype of the equestrian. And uh, we're going to move forward here uh, later on in this episode. We'll touch a little more on this whole equestrian idea and the, the different concepts that come out of that. But uh, I would add, uh, just from our, our past studies when we looked at Virgil and other things, when you see the term equestrian, know that there's something else going on there, guys, and this is a veiled reference to something called Kabbalah, not the Kabbalah you're thinking of, phonetic Kabbalah, a different form of Kabbalah. The words has meaning game. This is the alchemical science of the word words have meaning game, the Kabbalah, the phonetic Kabbalah. And that's what it's referring to. It's telling you in no uncertain terms, whatever this author is writing, pay attention because there's coded messages in it. There's another thing, and I've said it a lot of times, all alchemical procedures, which this text could be considered as a playbook to these things, pay careful attention here to the world around us now and to this supposed birth date. It's at the spring equinox when important alchemical procedures begin in March 20. And to really kind of try to bolster what Wayne said in some meaningful way so everyone can think about it, Wayne, why don't we take a moment to use Philip? which is a word which will derive back to horse lover. In the Bible, Philip is seen gathering the last fruits. Well, why are they last fruits? Because it's fall, of course, that, you know, the harvest is over. There's just a few things left on the ground now. And what sign are you going into? Sagittarius of the horse. Now, we did this work when we went back to the Vatican saint lineup and all those kind of hermetic, cabalic statues that have been called saints and we know damn well that they're something else altogether and that's just one example it's this kind of occulted usage where they can trot things out for people to pay attention to well behind the curtain where they all exist there's all this other meaning uh did i drop anything there wayne I don't think so, but we'll see when we get further down the road in the notes here when we're talking about a certain individual named Chiron, uh, who is a centaur. Centaur, there you go, half horse. So uh, once again, you could see these ideas carry over in many different ways. Well, it's also, it's, all, it's a bit like the Barnwall and animal form, the loss of meaning of names. You go into our world today, there's Lord knows how many Davids, Bills, Barbaras, and Susans, just reused, no real meaning attached. 
there used to be a vastly different world where the names did have meaning, and that's what's being applied in the St. Philip's story I just told. And you can still make, if you want to think about it, like what do you call a, a small horse? A filly, isn't it? Um, so there's the idea echoed in a way that you can think about it. And the people who are actually best at taking apart the hidden side, the deeper meanings of all these things, are people who understand what names mean and these types of things. Ontology, topology, these things we cover over and over. Ovid studied rhetoric toward the practice of law under teachers such as Aurelius Fuscus and Portius Latro. He renounced law and began traveling. He held various minor government and court positions at a very young age, but later gave up on those to pursue poetry. Ah, what a wonderful (laughs) time when you could do such a thing. (laughs) He renounces law, then he studies law, then he says to hell with law. And then he says, I'm going to write this book that's going to matter till uh, the year 2020. Go ahead, Wayne. Yeah, when you look at this, this this first of all points out the fact that Ovid came from a very prominent, uh, wealthy family. He was able to go ahead and do something like like study law and then just reject the teachings of it to travel. I mean, when you think about that, obviously this family was wealthy enough that he could just go ahead and, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go travel around and see what's what out there. So he went and did that, and instead he takes up poetry and studies poetry. But uh, there's another important point here rhetoric that's the thing he studied rhetoric toward the practice of law and uh, people are largely unfamiliar with what rhetoric is in this day and age and i would urge people to learn the art of rhetoric because it's it's very important this is uh, the art by which people are able to convince you of something this is like the the art of convincing people to change their mind about something that's pretty and, much and what, test a good an idea and test an idea as well right Absolutely. And to test different ideas. This is rhetoric. So a lot of people uh, in our modern society do not know what rhetoric is or how to pursue rhetoric as an actual study. But uh, I assure you, people in the higher echelons of the power structure, the power circles of our world are taught how to use rhetoric. And that's an important thing to remember. It's even worse than that because the usage of the word rhetoric in our time is might like an insult. Oh, listen to that guy's rhetoric. Um, it's a down. The name, the, the the meaning behind the word is now negative. In fact, any older culture where classical education for that culture was coming to bear, rhetoric would have been one of the main things taught early. Even in if you go to a place like Tibet. Those Buddhists um, that are almost wholly concerned with a spiritual path, they learn rhetoric. As a matter of fact, it's one of the big deals because they have to argue what we would call argue the points to come to some agreeable outcome about these ideas. But there's more here because it gets exhausting in a way when you're reading. And here I come to the word traveling. And so then I have to stop and say, well, did that word get put there to mean something deeper? And I think in the context of what we see going on now where we have like a 32nd degree Mason as the Surgeon General telling us horrible, scary things about Easter. Traveling has another meaning in the context of things when you think that way. It's a word that can easily be brought to bear and used in conversation that the average person will think, oh, he's going somewhere. But other people, that word would have levels of meaning. Absolutely. So Ovid was a fellow traveler. Keep that in mind. Wonder if he had the secret handshake and the signet ring. Anyway, <laughs> sure. Yeah. May I also suggest that rhetoric is what the mainstream media uses as a weapon against us with all their lovely little prepackaged news items. Right, but you see, this is the very point. In the modern age, it's looked at as a negative 
connotation on that word back when it was taught as part of the classical education that was not it at all it was a skill that one had to have to get up into positions that mattered or simply be a well-educated individual to be blunt about it so the idea of what rhetoric was then has no counterpart with what the way it's viewed now almost wholly the idea of rhetoric rhetoric now is negative oh look at that jackass on cnn or fox and all the rhetoric that is a bastardization of what it once meant it was once an important legitimately important tool used to communicate test ideas uh, have an individual bring his point of view almost like the acid test rhetoric was we're going to put this out and it's either going to stand on its merits or it won't maybe that's a way to describe it Right. And I would also like to add that uh, the way that they view rhetoric now is a total inversion of what it was meant to be right. in the nat natural system. And once again, here you go. This is where they're trying to replace the natural system with an artificial one. And they do so through the art of inversion by inverting everything to its total opposite. And this is what rhetoric is being used for now. One of Ovid's most prominent patrons was a Roman general and author named Marcus Valerius Masella Corvinus. All right, I see why this is included, but I will add before we talk about this, just to try to get on a path we can all agree on. Whenever you see a name from this period of time with the U.S. termination, which is kind of a hint, hint, hint in a way um, you're looking at the romanization or the latinization of a name so people in a lot of things i read would strip simply strip it back to corvin unless there was a reason to leave the termination and i'm not going to get into the religious connotations here because it tends to cause more trouble than it's worth but do you have anything you want to add on the general here under those ideas I would just add the whole sounds like is like game could be played all day long with something like that. Could be, and we would need to delve into the story to know more, but I, I suggest we keep moving. Ovid married several times. His last wife was connected to an influential family, the Gens Fabia, and would help him during his exile. This was just basically the point is made here that, that Ovid uh, was from an influential family and also married into a very influential family. So it just goes to show the lineage down through the ages of Ovid. So uh, I would suggest from this that it could probably be seen that uh, some of his ancestors, or not ancestors, uh, his uh, family members that are alive today could be probably in all likelihood important Italian families. Like so, when it comes down to it, I haven't done uh, the search into the uh, the background of who his descendants today are, but uh, I would suggest that there might be something to look at there. It would be an interesting thing for somebody to pursue should they want to on their own look and see uh, who are Ovid's descendants and what families that are prominent today could claim to be Ovid's descendants. Well, there's one thing I guess I can add on these ideas. There's a couple things going on here. Married several times, so it gives this impression to the mind that reads it. But really, we could consider, is this a living man? Is this a character name? Is this just a cover for this important text that needs to go forward? And when you start to run someone through several marriages, then you're playing the name change game, aren't you? Um, so then you would start to ask, well, wait a minute, what was the original name? What was the last name? What's the important for, you know, and you can see what happens. It's almost like an obscuration to even include these ideas to me. 
Yeah, and I think that's done on purpose. They they yeah. like to obscure these figures so that you really can't get to the the heart of the matter with them because a lot of them, whether they were real people or not, are largely constructs. Part of the problem with Ovid is the end tale, which we're going to get into. As a matter of fact, I can already see your notes bringing up the Black Sea. You know, the claim here is going to be that he pisses off Augustus and gets banished and basically says, but I don't care. I wrote this thing called the Metamorphosis. Everyone knows what Metamorphosis means, right? Uh, a lot of that going on in this book, uh, kind of like today. Right now, we're going through a Metamorphosis. But my point would be, he makes the statement, yeah, it's a shame I got banned, but my book will live on forever, so it doesn't matter. The story doesn't necessarily hold water when scrutinized on its own, but go, go ahead, Jason. In AD 8, the same year he finished his most famous work, Metamorphoses, he was exiled to Thomas on the Black Sea by the exclusive intervention of the Emperor Augustus. Ovid wrote that the reason for his exile was Carmen et Error, a poem and a mistake, claiming that his crime was worse than murder and more harmful than poetry. Historians are uncertain of why Ovid was exiled, but many have speculated that he may have known information about a plot against the emperor that he didn't share. Ovid died in Thomas in AD 17 or 18. In December of 2017, Ovid's banishment was formally revoked by Rome's city council. Uh, 2017, Rome's still thinking about Ovid, and historians are uncertain, but maybe he knew this secret? Come on. Come on. They felt bad about it. Yeah, what are we dimwits here? It's like it's like a lot of the stuff you see on TV where they start with this bombastic claim, but they say, is it possible? The moment you hear the words, is it possible, you should already be on your way. They're just making stuff up. They might as well put theory before the entire thing because it's just an idea. It's what it is. But we don't recognize these things. We hear the word theory and we think, oh, that's all sciencey, must be good. No. It's an idea that can't be made into a law. In other words, it's not really good at all. And if it's been around for a long time, it's less good because that means this idea has been here quite some time and cannot be proven to be provable. And so when we get into these things, it really feels to me like they're just creating a character on a stage and assigning all these things to fill in a backstory so that we can have this text. And by the way, if you're going to still be dealing with the character of Ovid in 2017, the Lord knows how many centuries after he's dead, supposedly, that tells us something about the importance of the work at hand. And lastly... The same year he finishes one of the most famous works of all time called Metamorphosis, right up there with Ennead, the best Western literature ever, supposedly, someone says, oh, you just wrote the greatest thing of all time. You're banished to the Black Sea. And by the way, we're going to go ahead and keep all the stuff you wrote, I guess. Uh, just none of it holds up to scrutiny. What would you add, Wayne? I would add, I just think it's it's noteworthy that exactly, supposedly, 2,000 years after the guy's death, they exonerate his exile. So that just says that there's merit to this work, and that's just an acknowledgement from Rome. I mean, and you're talking about Rome. The city itself acknowledges that there's something important to the work of Ovid. 
on a date that resolves to eight if you lose the century marker and that's you know that's the mobius strip that's the forever that's the time travel idea um in hollywood which is indistinguishable from going to supposed outer space those two ideas are the same to hollywood and by the way if you include the century marker it becomes one uh, you know a starting point um it's all there and it, it never fails and actually if anyone wanted to take the time to look up what part of december specifically in 2017 you would know more i guarantee it that's how important this book is anything to add on this jason well doing something like this in the modern era brings attention back to it in the modern era right it points out that hey this is of importance maybe you should have a look at this this might be important information in five years from 2017 who knows Ovid's Metamorphoses, which means transformations, is a seminal work that can be construed as an alchemical roadmap or blueprint for things to come. It is a collection of archetypal concepts for the esoteric purpose of creating drastic change or transformation. We will look at the underlying hidden symbolism in the various books of the Metamorphoses and how these archetypal concepts are being used to bring about a major transformation in our world today by those initiates of the Secret College. Yeah, that was a good little paragraph there, Wayne. So yeah, the ideas that we run with today are mostly, I think, thought about and what did this collection of words mean symbolically or otherwise to me. There's more to thinking about these things than that. You have to look at Ovid. Okay, Ovid, what's that mean? What's it sound like? What could that relate to? Um, and that's true. It's always been true. It's just that people didn't have to think about it at one time. They kind of knew when they picked up an iris, there was a meaning to the color purple. There was a meaning to that flower. That flower only bloomed in a certain part of the year. All these things were intended, not just pretty girl, I'm handing you a pretty flower. There's all this meaning in the flower I am handing to you. And in some cases, the meaning was not I love you. I mean, could be the exact opposite. But when we look at the choice of the title of this book, Metamorphosis, you have to understand that's the overarching, big, encapsulating word to, to capture this most important of works. And what does it mean? It means transformations. Now, Wayne's going to get into this. I'll get into it a little more. But what's funny is the scholars who go at this act like the idea that this personage or that person is turned into a tree or a lake is kind of a side concern. And I'm here to say the exact opposite. That is the metamorphosis. That is encoding things they can't understand because it's encoded in occult ways. If these people, these scholars, these scientists don't have any familiarity with the idea of elements being air, fire, water, these kinds of older ideas, then they're missing the, the whole point here. But the real point, if we take it with the last bullet point, 2017, Rome's all about making sure Ovid's name is cleared, this matters now. And what are we doing right now? The whole of the world is going through a metamorphosis. And I think Wayne would suggest, I'm guessing, we'll let him say in a minute, that in ways, this is part of the playbook. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about the alchemical transmutation of the world mind. And uh, we, we see that going on in spades today. Look at just what's happened in the past few weeks. Uh, I don't think I need to say anymore. People are not venturing out in public out of fear. Yeah, fear, fear of, yeah. Metamorphosis, but I don't think we're getting butterfly wings um, mm. to make a terrible point. But it's all you, son of Jay. Is this once again pointing that all roads lead to Rome? I think beyond a doubt, 
And, you know, here, here's another thing. Like, think of the great works that are held up as great works in more modern literature. Uh, while you might be aware of the last name, quite often it's the title, you know, currently. We've got, it's not the reverse idea, but the name is just as big. These names from antiquity, these players on the stage who wrote these seminal works that are never, ever going to go out of style. Well, why is that? And the reason is, is for what we opened up with. There's these archetypes, these stories that were told, apparently for the first time, that we're allowed to know about, about what happens to a human being. Why did lightning strike? Why are people jealous? What happens when bad actions are taken and terrible things result, like the person you love ends up dead? All these ideas, almost every conceivable thing you could consider um, happening to a human being, both comic and dra dramatic, uh, included in, in this huge archive of what we call myth. And here Metamorphosis brings the 250 big ones to bear in 15 books. And again, I will point out, for those who can see, Ovid 1 through 9, for those who can see, is what we concentrated on, but it does go all the way through 15 books. Metamorphoses references almost 250 different distinctive myths and consists of nearly 12,000 verses. It is divided into 15 books that outline the historical timeline from the foundation of the world right up to Ovid's time through the lens of the Romanized version of Greek mythology. There it is, man. The Romans. Hey, there's this great thing the Greeks invented. Let's make it ours. We'll even change some of the names along the way. I don't, not, not a fan of Artemis. We'll just go with Diana, okay? That's more Roman. These kinds of things. There's a reason these things didn't go out of style, that they were held up as the greatest things, e even to the point where when you, did you know, by the time uh, the Vatican started collecting art, I've done a lot of work around this, um, even the supposed character of Michelangelo viewed all the statuary from what he was claiming was a thousand years before his time was at a level that they could not achieve. There's actual quotes there. So why don't we know more about this time when these great, great things were being done? And by the way, all these statues, there's no artist's name on it because that was not the important thing. It wasn't about superstars. It was about the idea embodied in this highest form of art they could achieve. And I think people need to consider if they pick up over it on the tail of a show like this, that we have even lost most of us. How do you read a thing like that and get meaning? But I'm here to tell you, if you focus on it and you pull your mind back around and you work at it, you will click into the little groove that your mind needs to be in between, I think, modern and I think ancient. There is like a little groove you can get into where you can still start to get back to the meaning. Although I guess I'm suggesting the meaning people back in the day might have got from this or people who know better, who are travelers, maybe, uh, get a lot more meaning than even we can possibly deduce. And I would say that's an important concept to remember with this is if you're trained in this art form of, of the meta communication that they use with the archetypes associated with myth, then yeah, you could render a lot more meaning out of these things. But that's the problem. Largely, uh, most of society has little or no training in any of these things, or, or even exposure to these classical stories and these mythological tales, things like Ovid. It's, it's not taught in our school system anymore. 
it, it's largely ignored, even though these are held up as some of the greatest works in literature. And there's a reason for that, because uh, I would contend that these are playbooks for people in positions of power to, to use, and they know how to read it, they know how to infer meaning out of what's there, and they know how to push it forward. And that's something that we're largely lacking. We're still in diapers as far as that stuff goes. We're we're learning as we go here. And I'm, you know, just beginning to understand the importance of the things that are encoded in a lot of these myths. And I would argue that uh, 250 myths covered here in Metamorphosis, that makes this like the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica almost. Right. Or the table of contents for uh, there you go. The, the, the playbook. So, you know, you've got to consider, too, and we haven't covered this, like, if you go read the real Iliad and the Odyssey, it's like a poem. And it's not easy for the modern mind to switch over to these. And there were many types of hexameter, decameter, I'm, I'm just making up words because I can't recall, but these metered styles of writing. And what we're laying down here is no different. Almost everything you read has not only been pulled out of its poetic meter, um, it's been translated to the best of their ability. In many cases, they'll claim they tried to keep the rhymes and the similes and things like this, but you're going to lose something. The point I would make is go ahead, go online and look up the original something like the Iliad in the meter it was written, and you'll see what we're getting at. We've fallen miles and miles and miles from a mind who could get the subtle meanings and the subtle reasons for the, the way these words were put together. And at this point, we're just like walking under the bleachers at a game that's been over for a long time. They're setting up the field for this new Super Bowl of all time. And you pick up this book and you dust it off. And it's like a playbook, isn't it? The problem is, is the legend is gone. So you're working to put together back as much as you can. Having come through a time when legends are no longer used, there is no guide to tell you for the most part. And even when you go to the scholars, the scholars are going to say, well, yeah, this god or goddess or person turned into water, but it's just, it means, no, you got to think back. What does water mean in the context of the old natural sciences? That's one of the elements of the earth, which is where this all opens, telling you how the elements were formed almost not really verbatim, but in the same vein as the book of Genesis. I mean, literally in the same vein. This is how this place that didn't exist came to exist. We're going to describe that here. We're going to do it elementally. But even if you have eyes to see with and you go to the book of Genesis, the elements are not lacking there. They're just not put forward in a way that allows you to recognize them. Right. And I would also like to suggest here that I think another important aspect to this is the meter in which these things are written. Right. We lose so much information with that anymore. If you think of it from like a cymatic type of a, a mind frame, uh, just the meter that this stuff is written in could be an important element. And I think a lot of our uh, intelligence community and, and secret societies of today understand a, a premise to that. And it's one thing, there's a version of this within the intelligence community. The font that they use to write their documents is an important uh, facet of many of these documents as well. And this kind of carries over because it's about patterns, cymatic patterns or sound patterns or visual patterns. And this is something that's lost on our minds today when we're reading a text like this. So if you were reading it in the original uh, language that it's written in, in the meter that it's written, uh, you'll get a different sound out of it that will communicate something to you that we don't get today. It's information that's lost to us at this point.
You could also draw a parallel to the cadence that is used in modern reporting and things like that. For instance, the way politicians speak and the way mainstream newscasters speak, it's using a meter of sorts as well. It's a certain cadence that is meant to deliver information to you in a certain way that you wouldn't normally speak in day-to-day conversation. Rhetoric misused in the way we previously described, but I'm, I'm searching my mind. So much subtlety, so much important, subtle information with big ideas lost to us. And I was trying to think of a modern example, and then it dawned on me, wine. Wine can provide kind of an example so people will understand what we're thinking about. Here in the West, you know, a lot of people, it's starting to change, but we'd say, well, what grape was that wine made from to know all we could know when we tasted the wine? You go back to France, there's a whole other thing going on there. It's the terroir. And what the terroir, you can recognize the beginning of that word to mean earth, I would assume, terra. What they're saying is we don't care what grape it was. We don't care anything except where it was grown. Because alchemically, that soil, that sunlight, that amount of water to that particular piece of ground is unique. And now you can start to understand why the cheese is called Parmesan. And it can only be called Parmesan if it's from there. There's this subtle, massive amount of information that can be derived from thinking of a thing in this almost alchemical way. But there's so much more because when they understand the terroir of a wine, now if we're having fish for dinner in that culture, they instantly know, well, that's the wrong wine. That doesn't work at all. And this one does. And this is the best of all because subtly we've understood as much as we can about exactly where this thing was created, what attributes it takes from this place, and what it will pair with in our world. Now, most Western minds don't think on a subtle level to that degree at all. And you have to go back to old world cultures to even try to find an example like I just did. But that's the closest I can come to try to illustrate in a modern way what's been lost. The phrase, history repeats itself, couldn't be more true. You simply need to understand what is allegorized in the ancient myths to see why. Well, if you're lucky enough in this world to stumble across a playbook and recognize it for what it is, then you'll start to understand that there are, in fact, so many stories that get told over and over and over. Just to make the point, I'll refer you back to the one we did on uh, Truth Down the Well, the myth, um, Truth Down the Well, sometimes called Althea Truth, sometimes called Veritas. Um, And again, this is what makes it difficult. You got to know the old Greek names. You got to run them up into Latin to get the biggest part of the picture you can, this is how CNN came to be, using the archetypal myth of truth down the well in the baby Jessica story, which we covered at length. Wayne? Absolutely, and that is a perfect example of one of the ways that this playbook is used. So, uh, like, when you look at these things from the, the point of view that this is a playbook, this is what they're doing. They're taking these these archetypal ideas and utilizing them to implant an idea Uh, the seed of an idea in the human mind and manipulate that idea and grow that idea. And that's exactly what CNN has done. Up until that point, there was not this 24-hour news cycle. And now we're just constantly inundated with this all throughout the day from from every angle. So uh, it's one of those things where it's really infiltrated the human mind. And they've used this archetype of the, the truth down the well to uh, justify lying to the people on a, a grand scale. And they've used this archetype and put it in your face so that in a, a, a kind of karmic sense, 
you could know that you're being lied to, but at the same token, they could continue to, to do this to you. And if you don't see it, then that's not their fault in their view. They've told you what they were doing. So it's it's kind of one of those ways that they, they skirt the, the karmic principles involved with this stuff. And they use this playbook to manipulate the human mind. A couple things. People don't miss what they're saying that have a decent education. And think of it this way, maybe. Um, people in power that are very educated, uh, and basically the roots of education are always going to be Roman and Greek-based, the, the idea of the classic portion. And so you're in a situation where you're going to invent what happens next. Well, you've had a classic education, and you accept that there's only so many stories to be told. So why waste your life trying to come up with a new version? We'll just go grab the story that's been told put some new costumes on the characters and run with it. But I will maintain even the idea of the comic book Superman was supposedly based on the idea that it was logical outcome for human beings because you can show up at a athletic event every year and someone will be a second quicker, a couple feet more, these kinds of ideas. How come in all this time in the modern era, we haven't hit the threshold? Nope. Human beings do not run faster than this. Doesn't happen, does it? There's always the expectation and the idea that someone can break the record, and that's what strive for, and eventually the record gets broken, which implies that at some point of this progression of getting better and better, that a new story could get told, and yet you're bound, in a way, by all these stories that happened so damn long ago. They were made up, they were shown, they were codified, they were made into poetry we're just looping through the same ones and we're all doing it at this very moment just to be clear we're stuck in a cybernetic feedback loop what are you broken know? broken loop man let's just <laughs> throw 10 out and count from 2 to 11 for the rest of our life <laughs> so there's so much that we're going to get into here and it's very difficult to try to communicate why these things matter most people don't have a view of greek or even roman myth that does matter, but if I had a full day to sit here and talk about it, uh, you would understand that there is damn near nothing in the modern existence that isn't using these foundational tools. Even the old tired cliches that get used over and over because we're not brilliant enough to think of new words, all roads lead to Rome. Everybody knows it's true. There's a reason why that cliche gets used because it is what it is and everybody knows it. Thing about Rome, is they had to write a new book because the old book of heroes in this time that was apparently far above anything they ever got to, I think, they took it all and they made it into their own and you know they, they went further with architecture and all these. But did they? Did they go further? Or did they just go Roman? In other words, could it have been that if you can look at a statue that no one has been able to touch since? A good example is there's a claim in Michelangelo's time, uh, Lacerta, or I forget the name of the statue, to dude holding a bunch of snakes. You can look it up online. has directly to do with the fall of Troy. Apparently, it is claimed a farmer found a hole in his field, looked down, and oh my gosh, here's this statue like no one's ever seen. Supposedly, a man, a character, a thing called Michelangelo came along and said, oh my lord, that is the pinnacle of anything that could ever be We'll never be able to touch the level at which that was done. Hint, 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 a thousand years ago. So I'm just saying, man, if you understand the basis for all the things that go on around you without a classic education, that's not possible. If you don't have a good overview of not only the Greek 
names of myths and the romanization later, you're going to be lost in space and you're never going to understand a damn thing that happens because you're being poked in the eye when Lady Diana does this, that, or the other thing, if you follow. Anyhow, Wayne, why don't you tell people where they can find you? All right. Uh, I could be found at alchemicaltechrevolution at gmail.com. If anybody wants to get in touch with me there, uh, they could check out my Facebook page called Files from the Conspiratorium. Or uh, I do a show every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, with Jason on Secrets of Saturn YouTube channel. And uh, we, we usually do uh, some, some pretty good stuff over there. Uh, also, uh, you know, you could just, if you need to get in touch with me and have no other way, you could hit up Crow or Jason. They know where to find me, so uh, I could be found at all those places. I have books available at Amazon and at any other fine book retailer. All you got to do is put my my name in the, the search engine, and they should come up. All right, there it is, man. We're going to get into big ideas. If you're interested in some big ideas right now that have a one-to-one relationship with the metamorphosis we are going through in this world, show up for hour two over at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W. 777radio.com. And as you will notice in the video, I am blaring the fact that people are just basically ripping off the content and defrauding people. There's no other word for it, but that's okay. Uh, I think PayPal is about to knock on their door. A matter of fact, I know PayPal is about to knock on their door. Trying to prove that my voice is mine, that's a hell of a thing. That's a tale on its own. Jason, anything before I close up? Well, unfortunately, we're all on board one great big ship heading into stormy seas where we don't know what the final destination is. So everybody hang tight. I'd be willing to bet there's going to be a metamorphosis, but that's just my perceived view. Anyhow, join us for hour two, and there will be big ideas in hour two at crow777radio.com. And uh, I'd like to wish you all a very event-less week forward as we come up to the day of the sun, which will mark Easter for 2020. Let's hope not much goes on. Maybe some Easter egg hunts. I hope. Cheers.